Welcome, proud members of the present, to another episode of the Primalosophy Podcast. Go to Primalosophy.com for one-on-one wellness coaching. My guest on the podcast today is Devdutt Patnayak. He's the author of 41 books and over 1,000 columns with bestsellers such as My Gita. He writes on the relevance of mythology in modern times and gave one of my personal favorite TED Talks called East First West, The Myths That Mystify. In this episode, Devdutt teaches us that we all see our world through the lens of mythology. We discuss the Bhagavad Gita and the fears and hunger that underpin all human interactions. We explore the question, who decides what's right and wrong, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Devdutt, and if you want to support the show, you can do so by clicking subscribe, clicking some stars, and sharing with your friends. Enjoy. So every culture is trying to understand itself and why we exist. Every culture comes up with its own understanding of life and customization of mythology and then pass down that from generation to generation in the form of stories, symbols, and rituals. So tell me, I mean, why can't society exist without myth or religion? Because we are human beings and we imagine. And because we imagine, we can imagine a world without us. And then we realize that the world can function pretty well without us. It doesn't need us. And therefore, we start asking questions on value. I mean, what do I bring to the table? And then uh, it comes to, so what is the purpose of life? Why does the world exist? Once you start asking these questions, nature doesn't provide answers. Science doesn't provide answers. Mathematics doesn't provide answers. Rationality doesn't provide answers. You need a story to make sense of life and to give yourself meaning. And therefore, every human being will look at a story. There's no human being out there who doesn't have a story to make sense of his life. And that story is, if it is culturally transmitted and uh, reinforced by culture, then it becomes myth. Even for like the nihilists who say there is no meaning, aren't they still seeing the world through some sort of lens? They are, because the fact that they can say it has no meaning, that means that they're thinking about meaning. Uh, and it is really um, the despair of it. Uh, because they are seeking a meaning rather than allowing themselves, you know, they're seeking meaning from an external source. They're seeking an objective meaning. But meaning by definition is subjective, and they're not willing to take responsibility for the meaning they give themselves and their lives. And they basically don't value human beings' capability of giving meaning. So it really comes not from, um, you know, they're just basically coming from a rejection of humanity itself, their own. Mm-hmm. You say that imagination, it, it can help us and it makes this whole journey much more beautiful and exciting, but at the same time, it can get us in trouble. It does, because that's what makes us human. The only difference between a human being and an animal is the fact that we can imagine and not an imagination at a scale. Animals do imagine to some degree, but nothing on the human scale. Um, and that is why we invent things. If we didn't in, if, imagine, we wouldn't create tools. We wouldn't create technology. We wouldn't create so society, we, everything that we invent and innovate is an outcome of imagination. Right, including language and being able to pass down wisdom that we've learned from our elders. Yes, because it's we code it, we code, uh, we create words, we create sounds. Uh, see, animals communicate, but they only communicate descriptively. Um, we use metaphors, we use symbols, uh, we create art, we create music. All this comes from imagination. If we didn't have imagination, we wouldn't do that. So mythology is the architecture of the mind, and there's Eastern architecture and Western architecture. How do the building blocks differ among the East and West? Well, East and West, I use it in a very loose and simplistic way, just for sake of understanding. 
Um, where I stand from in India, for example, the, the major narrative revolves around the idea of rebirth. This is not the only life you lead. You're, you come into this world carrying karmic baggage, um, you know, a whole bunch of debts from your previous life. And when you die, you carry forward some of the debts. Now, this is the architecture, in, in, especially in the Indian subcontinent. But if you go towards Middle East and then you go to Europe and America, what you hear mostly is the idea that you live only once. And this is the only life you have. And therefore, you want to live it in a correct way, in a good way, in a proper way. And therefore, there is a lot of anxiety because this is the only life you've got. And uh, if you don't do it right, there is no second chance, which is not the idea that you get in um, the architecture of the East. So this is a fundamental difference that you see between, uh, um, you know, in the midst of the East and the West. Before we go deeper into that fundamental difference, are you open to sharing where you land on that? It changes. There is no uh, one answer. I do come from the rebirth paradigm, and that's where I find more peace. Uh, but sometimes one life also makes sense because when you want to solve problems, you can't. Um, you know, it's sort of it's a it's a story that helps you that yeah, you have to do it in this life. You can't wait for another life. While um, my traditional moorings remain within uh, the rebirth paradigm. Okay. And you make this into an incredible story. So I was hoping to better understand how our viewpoints differ. Maybe you could tell me about the legend of Alexander the Great meeting the yogi or the naked wise man. So this is a legend that's found in India that when Alexander came to India, I mean, historically, we know that Alexander left Macedonia. He conquered the Persian Empire in the region, which is now called Iran and Iraq, and then comes to Afghanistan and comes right up to the borders of India. And then he turns around. And then I'm, the, the, historically, the reason is because his army got tired and there was mutiny and they wanted to go back home. But there are many legends which emerged around this. And one of the legends which emerged is that he met a wise man on the banks of the river and he asked the wise man, um, what are you doing? And the wise man said, I'm experiencing nothingness. And uh, the wise man then asked uh, Alexander, what are you doing? And he said, I'm conquering the world. And they both laughed because each one felt the other was a, was a fool because as far as Alexander was concerned, you live only once and in this one life, you've got the opportunity to be great, to be extraordinary. While the the this naked wise man, the yogi over there, saw it as, you know, you have many lives, what's your hurry? And you'll never ever conquer the world anyway because the world is infinite and your lifetime is anyway finite. So these were two different ways of looking at the world. Like at one level, there is this man who wants to achieve something great and believes that's what's going to, that's the purpose of his life. And the other one doesn't see his, almost finds his actions foolhardy. And because he says that you'll never achieve it. It's, it's impossible, you know, and he finds it, he doesn't understand why the stress, why the, uh, the armies, why the violence um, while he's meditating. So there are two different points of view looking at each other and sort of, uh, I think that's, uh, supposed to have happened uh, 2,300 years ago. So it's the difference between the driven or achieving mindset and the resting mindset of experiencing nothingness. And I like how you say experiencing nothingness, not striving for nothingness. Yes, because um, the idea here is to be and to become rather than to achieve. There is no target orientation. There is no promised land to visit. So when you read the Bible, the, the promised land is a very important concept. You have the idea of the slavery in Egypt, and there's the exodus and the wilderness and the yearning for the promised land. Um, this theme is not found in Indian stories, this place that there is a place from where you have come and you want to go back to. 
this idea does not exist in Hindu mythology, although people have now tried to reframe Hindu mythology using this language in a global village. But generally, the idea is that things happen, they go up and down, good things happen, bad things happen, and you have to witness it. And you really don't have much control over your life other than how you respond to challenges. Mm -hmm. So one is trying to conquer and get into the so-called heaven of heroes. The other is living the same life infinite times until they get the point of it all. One linear, one cyclical. So this is the big, this is the simpler and easy way of understanding the two differences in worldviews. You know, uh, I always tell people that when you, uh, the notion that you live one life, means that the value of your life is the sum total of your existence. You know, the value of your life is the sum total of all your achievements, sorry. Uh, while if you live infinite lives, the denominator of your existence is infinity, which means no matter what you do, it's zero. When you say infinite lives, is it infinite of the same life? I will live this life over and over. Both things exist. One is that you live the same life again and again and again till you figure out what it is. And therefore, you keep repeating the same mistakes in life. And you keep, you know, people keep saying, that, oh, my God, I'm following the same pattern. And that in a metaphorical way represents rebirth because you're doing the same thing again and again and again until you figure out, oh, I am doing this and you break out of it. We see these mistakes in, in Western culture, especially in the form of meditation, where we make the mistake of aiming and striving to achieve a state of non-thought where we don't have any thoughts coming in our mind instead of just trying to achieve a calm mind. I think that is something that um, I noticed because you know, one of the re- when I was doing research in yoga mythology, this whole idea of a report card, of having a target, uh, you know, I have to do this. Um, this the non-relaxed approach to um, uh, meditation. I mean, meditation is supposed to calm you down. It's not supposed to stress you out. Um, you know, and uh, if you can't do it, it's fine. Do it the next day. There's an, another day and that you can do it the following day. Um, and there's nothing to achieve, really. The achievement of non-achievement is the point. So is the reason why you did your TED Talk, why you're trying to explain the, these differences so we better understand these viewpoints, what, what's the practical use of that? You see, if you look at the uh, world today, people are traveling all around the world, you see. Let's say you've lived all your life in New York and then suddenly you get a job in India. Come to India and you're like, people don't function, people function very differently here. And then you are struggling because people don't look at the world the way you do. You, you know, um, I have seen people who come to India who uh, want a meeting to start on time and they find the meetings don't start on time. And people are relaxed about not being on time. And nobody gets hysterical that people have not arrived on time. Uh, but when you meet some of your European friends or American friends, you can see them getting uncomfortable because people are not following up on time. So that's a practical difference because um, in many cultures, time is seen very differently. They're more relaxed about it. Um, sometimes time is important depending on who is coming, who are you meeting. So these are the practical uh, applications of mythology because you realize that people from different parts of the world function very differently. It's not only showing up on time, it's in here, you better be 15 minutes early. <laughs> yes, and um, so you, you'll find, you know, it's a habit that I develop because in India people don't come on time. You keep confirming and also, um, you know, um, infrastructure is not that great. So you keep uh, calling up people to confirm a meeting. Is it happening? Are you there? Are you on your way? But when I was in America and I would have meetings, nobody would reconfirm. 
and it would get me very anxious because they would be there on time, of course, because they're used to people being there on time. So there's no need to reconfirm. If there has been no cancellation, it means the meeting will happen. But in India, there is a constant anxiety in a way that you're checking, okay, is the meeting on? Uh, I have left the house now, I'm arriving. Um, and that's, you see these cultural differences in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So with the demand for globalization comes inevitable clashing. So I thought we could kind of segue into talking about the Gita and Arjuna's pacifist argument and laying down his sword on the brink of battle and how wrong we get it here in America because the point of the Gita is to transform the way we see the world, not to misinterpret it and have everyone fighting over it. Uh, what happens in the Gita is when he's laying down his weapons, people are telling the story that his argument is not that the war is happening, and that's the biggest mistake people make. The story is two people, are there is a great war happening, and this one soldier says, this is wrong, why are we fighting? And he lays down his arm. If I tell you the story in this way, it seems that, hey, this guy is for non-violence, and very Gandhi. But that's not the argument. The argument is he doesn't want to fight his family members. The people on the other side are his relatives. And he's saying he doesn't mind fighting strangers. But he does mind fighting relatives, people who he considers as his clan, his cousins, his brothers over a piece of property. And the, the conversation starts, and as the book progresses, you are asking the question, who do you consider a relative? What do you mean by this is your family and this is your land? Who decides this is your family and who decides this is not your family? And when did you decide this is your land and this is not your land? And the larger narrative where nobody belongs to anybody and everybody belongs to everybody and earth belongs to everybody and how we create properties and territories out of it. So the narrative starts to ask, unravel our assumptions about ownership, property, therefore property disputes, therefore arguments, uh, arm wrestling over what is just and what is right and who is right and who is wrong and what violence is acceptable and what violence is unacceptable. So this is kind of, this is where the lens of mythology clashes with the lens of evolution because, you know, prior to thousands of years ago when we, we started having these cultural constructions, when we were just in tribes, small tribes of say 150 people or less, that was our family and that's who we had to protect and fight for. Yes. But um, today we, we don't use the word tribes, we use the word nation states. We are still tribal. So we still fight about patriotism is just another form of tribalism. Indians fight Pakistan. Pakistan is against Afghanistan. Afghanistan is against Iran, Iraq. Look at these. These nation states are just glorified, glamorized version of tribes. It's uh, with technology. It's just tribes with a lot of technology. But it is tribal. Um, uh, the moment there is human being, there is cultural construct. Even amongst tribes, there's a lot of war. Uh, uh, two tribes in the forest fighting over the same resources have very strict rules about how they engage with resources to avoid war. Um, therefore, uh, in many tribes, there are uh, headhunting tribes. Uh, because if you, the, the idea of taboo, where if you cross the line, the other tribe has the right to cut your head off. And uh, therefore, there is this kind of a peace being created through very strict rules, rituals uh, between tribes. So inter-tribal warfare happens. I mean, I was recently in New Zealand and um, I saw the Maoris uh, who have traveled across Polynesia from island to island. 
and i kept asking why do they travel so much you know they tra- they took with them pigs and chicken and uh, across the sea and they carried uh, yam and they carried um, grain from one island to the other and i said why did they migrate and they said you know once a brother when the tribe becomes too big and the resources become too big one of the brothers either has to submit to the elder brother or has to try migrate out which means you're still talking about property and there were uh, slavery between the maori tribes you would ens- fight with each other and sl- enslave each other so it's very similar to what is happening in between nation states today i, I kind of interjected and cut you off could you continue with what you're telling me about the gita so the gita is about uh, you know um, the the popular misconception about the gita is that the person who is raising the question wants non violence and the argument is for violence and people have sort of used this gita in this narrative while really the gita is talking about what is yours what is mine because the moment we have notions of you know in america the notion of property rights is a fundamental right you have a right to property and this is humanity's greatest myth because in nature there is no concept of property there are territories animals have territories but they can't bequeath it to their children every generation has to fight for that territory every lion fights for its territory every monkey fights for its territory um humans have property which means i can bequeath it to my children it this land belongs to me i sort of register it with an authority and if you see the tensions which happen between native tribes and immigrants and around the world right now immigration has become a big issue is all because of whose land is it is this mine is this yours are you willing to share when does it becomes when do you become native to the soil so these are the questions that are being raised and really the answers you find them in mythology for me the larger narrative was like the in the gita was that we all participate but you have to choose how you want to participate and who you're fighting for the narrative beyond a point asks uh, uh, you know the different approaches to life and sort of gives you this great framework of um why do you fight for someone uh, what kind of fight is right like for example the large, the word dharma um basically is uh, when you you know when you when there is um, you know when in the jungle there's might is right but in civilized society the mighty have to take care of the meek mm-hmm. and if the mighty don't take care of the meek then you'll say okay i will fight for justice but in the gita the idea is why do you fight for justice is it possible for you to not um hate the people you're fighting so anger doesn't have to accompany justice if you are fighting a just war um you can't propel it by dehumanizing the people you're fighting so the narrative goes into this how emotional response to a intellectual argument so yes i don't think i think you are wrong and i want to fight you but it doesn't necessarily follow i have to hate you and therefore that that is the meditation and the purpose of meditation is to how do i argue with you debate with you uh, fight with you without hating you or dehumanizing you which is the natural tendency our natural tendency is to look at people we don't agree with as demons who have to be destroyed but yeah. it's quite possible there are humans who see the world differently and we don't agree on something doesn't mean we have to dehumanize each other and that's a challenge it's a 
mind body challenge so um, in in the gita they have these three roots this is the intellectual root the emotional root and the action root so your action you may act against someone and intellectually you may disagree with them but emotionally you can still care for them and how do you work with these three axes in order to um solve the problems of life yeah isn't is that like reason empathy action Yes, it is reason, empathy, and action. Philosophers that are like, we'll say reason, sympathy, action. Maybe not put yourself in their shoes, but kind of still be able to see where they're coming from. But empathy allows you to see the villain's point of view. The person who you describe as a villain, you know, in, nowadays these Hollywood films are coming up which are raising these issues like the Joker. You know, this Joker film which is just released in Hollywood, is, I think Joaquin Phoenix is winning a lot of awards for it. It looks at the story from the point of the villain. The classical villain in Batman and uh, comics is now being seen as a victim of a society that has whose system has collapsed. So um, it sort of gives that's empathy, that's empathizing. But the fact is, he's still the villain. And how do you reconcile the victim and the villain in the same? form it needs empathy you really need empathy at that time because you have to see what's going on there even though you don't agree with them and you don't agree with their choice of action and you don't agree with their decisions can you still empathize with them right that is that is the the challenge that the gita throws at us the, the whole joker movie because if you see the uh, earlier heath ledger when he comes as joker it's a scary terrifying creature and then you have this other story which is telling uh, the childhood of this character and you have these two very different ways of projecting the same character and now when you face him and he's about to blow up a city or maybe kill a thousand people how do you deal with him because he is a victim at one lens but he's also a villain at the other and that is what the gita is talking about that you have to your your emotions um have to also be considered along with reason Therefore, critical thinking, people talk about critical thinking, but I also believe critical empathy is important. If you only read the Bhagavad Gita, you would think Krishna is this motivational speaker who wins the war. Can you share the importance of knowing what happens before and after this passage? thing uh, about Gita uh, is that it is part of a larger epic. It, in the last hundred years, people have tried to isolate the epic the the conversation from the larger epic it's like taking the gospels without considering genesis unless you read genesis you really the gospels don't make sense because in the genesis you talk about the original sin and the fall and there's a narrative canvas in which the gospels exist in the same way the gita exists in a narrative canvas known as the mahabharat which talks about a property dispute and in this fight they talk about how at the end there's a there's a prelude to the war and there's an aftermath to the war and at the end of the war even the characters who are heroes suffer a lot their children die so the villains are killed yes but the heroes lose all their children so it's what we call collateral damage very casually you know when you go to even the most just war you lose your children in the battle too and therefore one has to be very careful with war and that is what one has to realize when you read the only the gavad gita people say it is that oh it's a great manual for management to win and to be successful but it also if you look at the story it talks about the incredible cost one has to pay in violence in action 
in choices of confrontation, even if those confrontations are righteous and right and correct. To understand Indian philosophy, we have to understand the relationship between predator and prey and hunger and fear. Can we dive into this? Yeah, because uh, you see, we, uh, as you said, evolutionary approach, I, mythology demands a lot of understanding of the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. Uh, human beings have come from the animal and plant kingdom. And if you look at the world of living creatures, all living creatures are hungry. They're seeking food, which means humans are also seeking. Our, seek, our quest for something comes from hunger. It's just that our hunger is not restricted to the physical, biological hunger. There's also psychological hunger. We're seeking other things. We're seeking meaning. And all animals are terrified that they'll be consumed by a predator. And human beings, as human beings, we are insecure about losing our jobs, losing our place in society, um, our security, uh, systems collapsing. So we are like animals trapped in this world where we are yearning for things and we're terrified of losing things. And this forms the background in which mythology is located. Because mythology through stories helps us cope with our desires, what we seek, the nourishments that we want, and uh, it also deals with our insecurities, our fear of loss. What do we lose? Our anxieties about what we will lose. You know, and all our motivational talks and all the uh, motivational uh, discussions that we have, the drives that we talk about, all come from these issues of not desire for nourishment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's we we may not have to fear predators or starvation anymore, but those will still take different forms in our modern lives. They will always. It just takes a different form. Our imagination constructs very different forms of um, different forms of predator. We we meta, we have turned it into metaphors now. It's not just a, a material thing. It's a metaphorical thing now. Yeah. So at the heart of violence, there's hunger. The lion can only live with the lamb when he's not hungry. And that idea, you know, everywhere in the world, this notion of heaven comes where the lion shall lay with the lamb. And I'm like, you know what, If as long as the lion is hungry, that's not happening. So, it, correct me if I'm wrong here, but so when Siddhartha says, I can fast, he's saying I can also, in, in a form, abstain from my desires because hunger is desire. He is. And you see, uh, uh, Buddhist, Buddhist narratives are based on um, monastic ideals. And for a, the monk is distancing himself from the world by conquering his fears and conquering his hungers. And that's the journey of the monk. You know, I make a, I make a joke about Robin Sharma's book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And I keep saying if he was a monk, he wouldn't sell it. He would give it away. Yeah, so this when you sell, you know, that means you're taking something. If you're a monk, you wouldn't take anything. And it's a point, it's a little detail which people forget. And I think, you know, I always say it's a classical, um, you know, capitalist spiritualism which forgets these little details that a monk doesn't desire. But, um, and that's what also makes Buddhism problematic because uh, as human beings, we live through fear and hunger. Fear and hunger play a very important role um, in our survival. And Buddha is effectively, that's why he's talking about shunya, zero-ness or nothingness, where he's withdrawing from the world completely. Uh, that's why he calls it, nirvana is called the blowing out of the flame, because if nothing exists, then nothing is hungry and nothing is afraid. And if 
that's the highest state in Buddhism, at least the old school, the Theravada school, the uh, what is called the older school of Buddhism. The latter schools, of course, have different versions because they realize that while the Buddha is great and he can reach a point where he's not hungry, how does he deal with people around him who are hungry? And therefore, the concept of compassion comes in and loving kindness comes in. This comes in later Buddhism. Early Buddhism don't, doesn't have this concept. This just makes me think of pain and suffering and the difference, whereas once we understand human nature and how we've evolved, we have to realize that we're still animals, so accept human nature, and sometimes you have to reject human narrative because that adding the story sometimes is what is going to bring in the suffering. When the story adds to the suffering, then it's time to reframe it. The stories are meant to really take away suffering, not give suffering. And therefore, when the story starts causing suffering, you, it's that's when therapy is needed. Because what does a therapy session do? It makes you narrate your narrative and then gently nudges you to change your story. You wrote a whole book exploring these fears and hungers that underpin all human interactions. Yes, the book of the forest. I collaborated with an artist and we both sort of put the book together. Um, yeah, that's the book I wrote, Aranyaka. It's the book of the forest. What's the metaphor there? I mean, why, why do you choose the forest? Well, forest plays a very important metaphor in Indian mythology. It is the space where humans have no control. So a forest is a place uh, where nature rules and humans, uh, human rules don't apply. So there are no rules. It's a world without rules. It's a world where the, um, the mighty shall eat the meek, the, rule, the world of the food chain and the pecking order, where there is no such thing as ethics and appropriate conduct and restraint and humans deal with the forest in different ways and the story deals with how we domesticate the forest how we cut down the forest how we control the forest and how we control our desires and our hungers and we control the predator and prey within us uh, and the journey from the desire to control to the desire to empathize so it is a journey from our need to control things to our ability to empathize with things. So that's what the story is about. I love that. And that's the thing about Mother Nature or the forest is it's not about what's right or wrong or, or good or bad. It's not that black and white. It just is. It just is. So in nature, you see the hungry wolf chasing the deer and you may not like it. You may say, oh, the wolf is evil. But the wolf is hungry if you start empathizing. And realize if it's hungry, what does it do? It's going to eat the only food it knows to eat. And it is going to chase the lamb or the goat or the deer or whatever is edible for it. Right. And we don't fault that predator for chasing that deer. But if it's a human who's trying to eat and meet their needs, then we will fault them. And you've said the concept of God as a judge does not exist in Hinduism. You are the judge. It's up to us to ultimately decide what is right and wrong. While judgment plays a very important role in the Western mythologies, Accounting plays a very important role in Indian mythology. So everything is accounted for. So if you have hurt someone, right or wrong, you are going to pay a price for it. And that is the, that's where karma is about accounting. It is not about judging. So Indian thought revolves around accounting. Yeah. So a darshan is, you're not seeking, there is no idea of judgment. The idea is uh, see me, look at me, understand where I'm coming from. It's the yearning for empathy. Uh, and um, also that see my suffering. So can you take care, help me deal with my suffering? See my insecurities. Can you help me deal with my insecurities? See my hunger. Can you help me deal with my hunger? So that's what uh, Darshan is about. So 
it's almost as if you want your friend to see you um you want your you know in a relationship you feel invisible or uh, your parent you feel your parents don't see you we use this word right nobody understands me what it means is we are yearning for darshan so all of your ideas and all your books revolve around the one idea of the other what does that mean understanding the other and understanding the myths that the people view the world through you know whenever people would talk about maslow's hierarchy i would keep hearing this word self actualization and there is in the entire hierarchy when i kept reading about it i realized it was all about self 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 there was absolutely no connection with the other and a self cannot exist without the other because it's the engagement between the self and the other we live in an ecosystem of the other um and the more you understand the others and how the other looks at you the better you understand yourself so uh, one of the th- things and i realized in mythology was um you know um reading mythologies from other parts of the world helped me understand my mythology better and i think that is where the you know global village is not about trying to find one narrative that fits everyone around the world it is about understanding other people's narratives and therefore figuring out how each narrative talks to each other and i think today when we are seeing so much anger in the political scene it is because we are not looking at each other's stories yeah we need to understand the difference between cultural constructions and that how everything is dynamic it's just by knowing that you're different and then when we engage with each other how you influence me and i influence you which is what happens in nature all the time you know plants are continuously exchanging things with each other um, there are confrontations there are collaborations there is shifts there's transformation as the weather changes plants change so there's a dynamic movement which is happening it's not static and cultures also are not static Yeah, we need to reframe our perspective and say, you know, when I talk to Devda, I don't know much about him or his culture, but that should be an invitation for me to want to learn more. I think curiosity about the other uh, without wanting to turn them into some kind of a predator or prey, a prey that I will exploit or a predator who will exploit me, but just genuinely just understanding where they come from and therefore there when empathy plays a very important role, darshan plays a very important role. where we see there other people's insecurities and hungers and drives and see you know we are so similar we are so different there are places where we can compete but there are places where we can collaborate and sort of a relationship forms at a deeper level and if we live this life over and over and in the process we get closer and closer to understanding the point of it all can i ask you what's the point if i knew it i wouldn't be still writing so i think we are the point is to keep exploring because there's infinity out there and we will never attain infinity in our finite lives so you just keep exploring more and more and enjoy the exploration i love that answer so ruminants play a large role in my life as a primary food source can you help me understand your holy cow unholy violence article and some of the takeaways well in india there has been you know the, the cow is a sacred animal in hinduism uh you know in, in a way like the way the jewish people will not eat pork it's not considered kosher or muslims will not eat pork in hinduism in hindus don't eat beef uh and this was a common practice around india but off late it didn't mean that other people couldn't eat beef but somewhere along the line in the political level there has been this kind of a very nasty form of hinduism which is not just about i will not eat beef but i will not let you eat beef and that has taken a very dark turn in our in in the society in recent times and people have challenged this kind of a very aggressive form of hinduism which is unusual hindus were never like this we were we are not an uh, aggressive people we i mean privately 
of course we would be like every other human being competitive and but this kind of a organized um boycott of people who eat beef or who are in the beef industry uh, is quite a surprise that has taken many indians by surprise and therefore this article was written in alarm at what is happening you see i think that you know we any anyone who uh, you know what is a radical person or what we call a fundamentalist or terrorist is someone who doesn't see other people's stories and believes that other people's stories are invalid and is not seeking collaboration and um, exchange of ideas i think that's where problems start and we have to be very wary it's in insecurity we do isolate ourselves but we can't let that insecurity overpower us to the point we start dehumanizing other people that's when fascism and all kinds of terrorism and all these kind of very dark forces rise it really comes from deep fear deep deep fear deep fear of what invalidation we feel the other will invalidate us have self love and self validation first before we can you know get the inner peace before you strive for world peace and realizing that we contribute to other people's peace just as other people contribute to our peace peace is not an isolation it doesn't happen in isolation it is through an engagement with the other it's you can't have peace by shutting your eyes to the world it is by empathy for the other that your inner journey becomes more and more refined because then you see the insecurities in other people reflected in your own soul and you realize you know what i'm just like that person oh i i am as cruel as that person who oh, i see that person is cruel oh, but i am cruel too and i have lived this kind of life i have been there and that empathy enables us not to be judgmental and look down on other people but to sort of even if you don't appreciate what they do but to realize that you know this is what human beings do when we are not uh, secure yeah and that's why when you see somebody like slip and fall it's hard not to chuckle because these are universal truths that we are all familiar with because it makes you realize man we are all in this together we're trying our best absolutely i think that's the where the empathy comes in and you know you can't see people oh do not laugh at people when they fall on the floor that's human it happens but don't go to the point where it becomes you know the reason for your living So I'm curious, what does your meditation practice look like and do you have any words of advice for my listeners who want to start practicing? I think the easiest way uh, for me while meditation is to do it on a day-to-day level, make it part of a routine. Uh you know, um it could be it doesn't have to be in a place with a mat. It could be in your car in when you're waiting in the traffic in the red signal or uh it could be, you know, that 10 minutes before you step out to office you know when you're wearing your shoes just sit down for 10 minutes and just focus on your breath for 10 minutes um or if you're coming back from work and you know you just you know put your feet up and you're about to have your drink just before your drink can you just sort of 10 minutes focus on your uh, on some music or just the silence in the room I think these are simple practices that we should practice or when you're sitting on your desk before you start your work or having a cup of coffee in your hand before you take the first sip just spend 2 3 minutes listening to the ambient sounds around you that makes a huge difference i think that's a good starting point so i thought we could wrap up with your desire to get saraswati out of the closet what is saraswati and why does this belong everywhere so saraswati is knowledge um and saraswati is the goddess of knowledge so it's the greek equivalent would be athena and uh, 
you know, many people lock knowledge and they keep it secret and they keep it, they don't want to share it with the world. And I think that's not correct. We need to share knowledge and wisdom with each other. And good conversation is all about that. A good conversation is where we exchange ideas and thoughts so that at the end of the conversation, we're a little bit more wiser than we were before we started the conversation. That's, that is at the root of human progress. Absolutely. Are you reading anything good right now? I am. I am. I'm, I'm reading a lot. I'm writing. I'm doing a work on Abrahamic mythology a lot. So Jewish traditions, Christian traditions, Islamic traditions. I'm going deeper, and you know, I'm quite excited to see how in Islam the stories from the Old Testament are written slightly differently. There's little twists which are not found in the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew Bible. And uh, what is there in the Hebrew Bible is not there in the Old Testament. Um, you know, little details here and there. And I like those little details. They sort of make the story more interesting. All right, Devda, if you could have a drink or a conversation with anyone in history, who would you choose and why? I think I'd like to spend some time with Sigmund Freud. Um, you know, he's the one who sort of made modern scientific world pay attention to the mind. I mean, his theories have been challenged right now, but he was a pioneer. He forced us to look at the mind and the impact the mind has on human behavior. I think he was a pioneer. I would love to have met him and understood his world. And you said some of his ideas are being challenged. Do you think he's the kind of guy who would have fallen on his sword? Not really, because you see, all ideas, if a scientific idea cannot last forever, new ideas keep coming. The purpose of science is to change with more new information. Um, to hold on to an old idea is very sad. One has to move on and allow it to change and evolve, hopefully, or replaced if necessary. So last question for you. What are your daily non-negotiables, things that no matter what will always be done? I think uh, my early morning coffee and sitting in front of the computer writing. That's my best thing. That's how I begin my day, every day. Awesome. So where should people go if they want to learn more about you and to connect with you? Um, my website, devdutt.com. And, and everything is there. My archive of 20 years of work, 1,000 articles, over 100 videos. So devdutt.com, D-E-V-D-U-T-T.com. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shikoba.